There's a, an old story that you've probably heard, but it goes something like this. There was apparently a man that was walking down the beach one day, and the tide had gone out. It had left hundreds, thousands of starfish stranded there on the sand, dying in the heat. And the man looks down the beach, and he sees this little boy down the beach by the waves. He watches the young boy for a little bit, and the young boy's going along, and he's examining starfish, and throwing them back out into the ocean. So finally, the man walks up close enough, and he meets the young man. He says, what are you doing? The boy says, I'm throwing these starfish back. The man says, look around, son. He said, you can't possibly save them all. The boy thinks for a minute, reaches down, picks up one, looks it over, throws it back, and he said, save that one. Save that one. I think sometimes we get overwhelmed with the immensity of taking the gospel to the whole world. That's why our theme this year is save one soul. In 2019, one at a time, it starts with just one, and, and I was so grateful to God this week as I heard from a couple of brothers here who are seeking to do just that in a way that they hadn't done at least for, for a long time. And they were they were getting ready to talk to people or had just talked to people and, and tried to share the gospel message. And, and they, they let me know that they're they're going out there and they're going to do this. And not only was I thrilled to hear that. But far, far more so, Jesus must have been thrilled to hear that. By those who loved him enough to go out there and share in that great co-mission and to, to share the very reason that he came to earth in the first place. In Luke 15, we're told there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people that need no repentance. And how it must have thrilled Jesus when these two brothers said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to share Jesus and I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to do this. However, most likely, as some of you have heard me now, start preaching about each Christian's individual responsibility to be personally involved with sharing Christ. One of the very purposes, one of the main purposes for which we were saved you might well have been tempted to come up with some reasons why maybe that's not you. You might have been tempted to come up with all sorts of reasons why it's not maybe your personal responsibility, but it's, it's somebody else's responsibility to do that. Why do I say that? Because that's just human nature. That is human nature. We're told that in Luke 9, 57 through 62, and Luke 14, 16 through 24. What are some of the reasons that you might have been tempted, maybe a few of you were tempted to think of why, eh, it's really not for me to talk to somebody about Jesus. Well, some of you may have been tempted to think, you know what, I don't speak really well. I get all nervous and choked up, and I, and I don't remember what I need to say. Some of you may have thought, well, I don't really know enough to share with, with people. 
I'm not sure what I'd say. After all, you know, I don't want to let the Lord down if I talk to somebody and they say the wrong thing. <coughs> not realizing that we don't say anything. We're not doing what he purchased us to do. Others might have been tempted to think, you know what? I've never had any training in the Bible. Never had any training. That is a professional's job. One quick thing, if I may say that. <coughs> I haven't either. Just so you know. I am no professional. You might have thought, well, people know who I am and where I came from. They've known me since I was younger. They know the mistakes I've made. They're not going to listen to me. Maybe you thought, well, I'm too insignificant. I'm not equipped for that job. Or maybe, lastly, you might have thought, you know what? I'm just too young. Some of you may have thought the opposite. I'm just too old. Or, I've tried before and it didn't work. So today and tonight, we're going to look at some very, very human biblical characters who may have thought along those same lines. Some of them even expressed thought, perhaps, along those same lines, but whom God used in incredibly big and mighty ways to save people. I want to begin by letting you know title. The title of this morning's lesson is The Least and How God Used Them to Accomplish the Most. And as I got to thinking about the least and how God used them to accomplish the most, I thought, well, I'm going to preach this on Sunday morning. And I got to looking through the Bible. If I preach this lesson just this morning, we're going to be here past fellowship dinner till about 1.30. Because the Bible is full of people who were the least that God used to accomplish the seemingly impossible and incredible most. Let's begin this morning. In this first illustration, if it sounds vaguely familiar, I did use it when I was over here to the gospel meeting a few years ago, but it, it bears being reminded of. Please turn to me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. I want to begin with what I like to call Moses' greatest hits. This mosaic menagerie, if you will, of excuses offered up by none other than Moses, the mighty man of God himself. Now, you know, we look at Moses and we think, what a man of God he was. And look at what he did and, and how great and powerful. I've got to tell you what. Moses had more excuses than most of us attempted probably to have. For example, does this one sound familiar? You ever ask yourself this when the preacher or the elders say, you need to go share Jesus? Have you ever asked yourself this one? Who am I that I should go? Me? You weren't the first. Moses used that in Exodus 3, verse 11. Who am I that I should go? God says in the very next verse, God answers him. He says, I'll be with you. Maybe you thought as you've been encouraged to share the message of Jesus with somebody, maybe you've thought along the lines or been tempted to, well, how am I supposed to answer all their questions? Well, that's not original to you. Moses tried that in Genesis, uh, Exodus 3, verse 13. He said, how am I supposed to answer their questions? And in verses 13 through 22, God says, you just remind them who I am. Remind them who I am. 
So Moses isn't getting anywhere with his, with his reasons for not going out and doing what God told him to do. So does this one sound familiar? Were you ever tempted with this one? What if they won't listen to me? What if they don't believe me? What if they won't listen to me? I, what if I go share Jesus and they won't listen? Um, you know the drill by now, right? That's not original to you. Moses already did that. Exodus 4, verse 1. You know what God said? Exodus 4, verses 2 through 9. You leave that to me. You just go. You leave that to me. Have you ever thought or been tempted to think, I just, I can't think of the words quick enough. I'm not witty enough. I don't think on my feet. Uh, Moses said, Lord, I'm so slow of speech. He said, I am, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Exodus 4 and verse 10. Did you see God's response in the next two verses? Lord said to him, who's made man's mouth? I'm thinking, God said, really, Moses? Really? You, you, you're too slow of speech, too, too slow of tongue? Really? I made your mouth. Or who makes the mute, verse 11, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? God says, I got this. Now, don't try to use your mouth as an excuse. I got this. I'm the one that created it. I can, I can make it all work. Don't worry about it. Have not I the Lord? I'm sorry, the seeing of the blind. Have not I the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth, and I'll teach you what you shall say. Just go. Moses, trust me. You have the words, just go. And so finally, when Moses runs out of all of those reasons why he doesn't need to go and do what God told him to go and do, you see what Moses come up with last? He, he, he's run out of excuses. Moses' greatest hits are now over. <laughs> see what he says? Look at verse 13. Lord, just send somebody else. You've exhausted my excuse list. Look, the bottom line is, send somebody else, not me. Not me. Not me. Does that sound familiar? Do we see any of the reasons that we're often tempted not to go and talk to somebody about Jesus mirrored in Moses' fatal five list here? See what God said in verse 14? Or what it says God was in verse 14? So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Every time that Moses had come up with a reason, God said, don't worry about it. I got this. I'll go with you. I'll take care of it. I'm with you. I'll fix it. Don't worry about it. Just go. Finally, Moses said, not me. God was angry with Moses. Let me ask you this. Was God, you don't have to answer me verbally. Remember, I barely remember this means yes, this means no. Just warming you up ahead of time. Was God ever able to accomplish anything noteworthy through his previously reluctant servant Moses? Are you people awake this morning? Thank you. This side is. All right, good. What did it take? What did it take for God to accomplish something awesome through his previously reluctant servant Moses? You know what it took? It simply took God, it simply took Moses trusting and obeying God not to go and do what he was told. That's all it took. When Moses went and did what God told him to do and told him to be with him, did, did Moses ever accomplish anything? Awesome and incredible things. Let me ask you this question. Did God ever accomplish anything through the nation of Israel? Yeah. 
That's where Jesus came from, right? The Messiah came through Israel, through David, through Abraham. Read Matthew chapter 1. And do you know that they were, according to Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7, the least of all peoples? They were the least. Through the least of all peoples, Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7, God accomplished the greatest of things by bringing the greatest of all, the crown prince of heaven, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And he brought him from amongst the least of all the peoples. It wasn't that they were the biggest, the greatest, the mightiest, or the most numerous, or the most religious. That's not who they were. In fact, they were just the opposite. But their strength as a people of God was found not in the fact that they were the biggest or the most religious or the mightiest. Their strength was found in the fact that they were God's chosen people and he was with them. What does the New Testament say we are? God's chosen people. And when God tells us to go, you know what he says? He says, go. Make disciples of all nations. He says, I'll be with you. I'll just, just trust me. Go. I'll be with you. What about Gideon? Remember Gideon? Turn to me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. In Judges chapter 6, the angel of the Lord, and if you ever study the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, not just an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, you're going to find out it's Jesus. Okay? The angel of the Lord, Jesus, comes and tells, this is critical, he tells a destitute, he tells a destitute and defeated Gideon to do two things. Go and save. Verse 14. Look what he says. Judges chapter 6, verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Haven't I sent you? God was sending him to go and to save. Sort of like, again, he tells us to go and make disciples. And you know what Gideon's response is? Gideon says, if I may paraphrase, you've got to be kidding. Can you picture Gideon there on the threshing floor, the Midianites have ravaged the land. Can you picture this message coming to Gideon and, and Gideon going, who are you talking? You can't be talking to me. Are you out of your mind? That's not what he says, but it's pretty close. Look at what he says. Look at verse 15. So he said to him, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. God uses the least to accomplish the most. Again. Look at verse 16. What does the Lord say to him? Yeah, he says, he says, yeah, he says, I'm the least. 
I'm the weakest, the weakest, I'm the smallest, the most insignificant. I can't do this. Verse 15. And God says to him, the Lord says to him, Surely I'll be with you. And you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. You see, God wasn't telling him, the Lord wasn't telling him, you're gonna go and win this because you're bigger, stronger, mightier, faster. You know, you're not the six million dollar man. I'm dating myself, aren't I? Okay. You're not bigger, stronger, faster. That's not the reason you're going to win, Gideon. The reason that you can do this, because I'm going with you. And if I go with you, you're going to win. That's the reason he was going to accomplish such great things. Let me ask you again. Did God ever accomplish anything noteworthy through the previously reluctant servant Gideon? Did he? Boy, did he ever. What did it take to make that happen? Same thing took Moses. It took Gideon loving and trusting God enough to just simply go and do what God told him to do. And that took a lot of faith. You know what? That took a lot of faith. It took a lot of faith on a lot of levels. And one of the reasons, Gideon says, I got 32,000 men. God said, oh, no, you don't. God turned his 32,000 down to 300. Because God wanted Gideon to understand, look, this isn't about you and your strength. You are weak. I understand that. You are insignificant. I get that. I'm going to even make you more insignificant. I'm going to reduce your fighting force from 32,300 people just so that you will remember when you win this thing, it was me with you that made you win. Not you. And so, he goes forward. That's what God told him to. With 300 men. And he routes them. Did you know that some of God's greatest victories come through his PR people? No, I'm not talking public relations. Never forget this. Some of God's greatest victories come through his PR people. His previously reluctant people. Moses was previously reluctant. Gideon, previously reluctant. Never forget that. But this is God's pattern. God always seems to take the littlest, the smallest, the most seemingly insignificant to accomplish the best, the biggest, and the greatest. That just seems to be God's pattern. We've seen it twice, so we're going to see it again. One writer once wrote this. God found Gideon in a hole. He found Joseph in a prison. He found Daniel in a lion's den. God has a curious habit of showing up in the midst of trouble, not the absence of trouble. Where the world sees failure, God sees future. So the next time you feel unqualified to be used by God, remember this. God recruits from the pit, not the pedestal. Remember the first king of Israel? Remember King Saul? Look at me in 1 Samuel 9, verse 21. 1 Samuel, chapter 9, and verse 21. When Samuel went to appoint Saul, this was Saul's answer. Saul answered and said, 1 Samuel 9, 21, Am I not a Benjamite of the 
the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. <laughs> Why do they need to speak like this to me? So let me say, you know what? I can't do this. Why do you keep preaching on this? Why, why do you keep bringing this up? I, that can't be me. That was Saul's answer. you got to be kidding. Look at us. We're, we're, we can't do this. We can't accomplish this. You can't be calling me king. Why, why are you talking to me like that? He basically says to God's messenger, you got the wrong man. You are barking up the wrong tree so bad. In fact, when Samuel went to put Saul before the people to publicly proclaim him as king, you know what Saul went and did? <coughs> he was hiding amongst the equipment. 1 Samuel 10, in verse 22. Later on, when Samuel goes to anoint the next king of Israel, when he goes to anoint David, or one of the sons of Jesse, as, as the sons of Jesse passed before him, he thought, surely it's going to be, God. God's going to think like I do. God's going to take the biggest, the mightiest, the strongest, the most, you know, big, mighty guy to be king. We know what happened, don't we? God said, nope, not them. And so what did God do? God chose the youngest, and therefore, presumably, the smallest and weakest. Usually, if you've got eight kids in the family, the baby is usually the, the youngest and the weakest by comparison to the rest of them. God says, that's the one I want right there. 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. The least prepared. These others, some of the older sons of Jesse were in the army. Is that right? They were in the army. These were prepared, trained fighters. Some of the older sons of Jesse. They were, they were in the army. And their kid brothers out tending sheep. That's a slave's job. That is like washing feet. That is like the lowliest of jobs. And it's like, are you kidding me? And you know what God says? I don't want the ones that look the most prepared. Hello, church. I don't want the ones that look the most prepared. I don't want the professional fighters. I don't want those that are the best trained fighters. I want him. I want David. I want the littlest, the weakest. I'm going to do something awesome with him. And he does. And I want to take a minute to really make this point. And I don't want to embarrass anybody, but something I want you to do. Because I want to really spend some time on this point as we talk about David. If you are 20 years old or younger and you have been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, will you please silently stand up? 20 or under, it's not hard to figure out, and you have been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, please stand up. I'll let you sit down in a minute, but I want to tell you something specifically. You must never let Satan convince you that you are too young to do the job that God saved you to do, and that is to go tell your friends about Jesus Christ. 
You must never let Satan convince you that it's some of these older folks in the church job to go talk to your friends about Jesus Christ. That is not their job. You must never let Satan say, well, I'm just too young. I'm 15, I'm 17, I'm 19, I'm, I'm 18, whatever. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the preacher's, the elder's, that's mom and dad's job, that's grandma. No, it's not. God did not save you so your parents could go talk to your friends about Jesus. Sit down, please. But listen to this. Don't ever forget this. If you are old enough to know and obey the gospel, then you are old enough to go and convey the gospel. If you're old enough to know and obey it, you're old enough to go and convey it. I want you to really listen closely to some of these biblical examples. As we've already talked about with David, we recall the story, of course, of David and Goliath. It wasn't the three oldest sons of Jesse in the army that would get the job done. It was little boy David. It was the kid. You know, David at this time was more than likely just like a young teenager. 13, 14, we don't know how old, but he was, he was probably a, a younger, younger end of the spectrum teenager. What did he do? Especially those of you that stood up, listen close. What did he do when there was a giant-sized job to be undertaken and executed for God's people? What did David do? He did not sit on the sidelines. He charged to the front lines. He did not go hide amongst the baggage or the pews. He went and charged out there and said, you know what? This is a threat to God's people. I know God. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to go in the name of God. <coughs> we know what happened, right? That's what David did. And again, God did not save you to sit on the sidelines and wait for some of your older and maybe in some ways stronger brothers and sisters in Christ to go do for you what he saved you to do. And that is to talk to your friends about Jesus Christ. About King Josiah, turn with me to 2 Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles. And I'm not picking on you young folks, but I think sometimes in the church we say, well, you know, it's, it's you know, we, we pick this age where, well, that job belongs to those people, and that job belongs to those people. Listen, if Jesus Christ's blood cleansed you from your sins and you know what he did for you, then it's your job too. 2 Chronicles, chapter 34. Look at this. Verses 1 through 3. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. We've got any eight-year-olds in here. Raise your hand. You're eight years old. No eight-year-olds? Really? None? Aha! Got one. Eight years old. He was eight years old when he became king. 2 Chronicles 34, 1. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Please notice, he died at 39. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father David. He didn't turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Please notice that that follows the part where he was 8 years old. In the 8th year of his reign, do the math, how old does that make him? That means he was 16. Any 16-year-olds? Okay? One. That's good. 
One is good. He was 16 years old. In the eighth year of his reign, notice the scripture says, while he was still young. Yeah, he was 16. He began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year of his reign, do the math, and king at eight, twelfth year of his reign, he's 20 years old. 20 year old. In the twentieth year of his, twelfth year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. The wooden images, carved images, molded images. Look at his epitaph. Go back with me to 2 Kings. Back up in your Bible, several books. The account of King Josiah is here in 2 Chronicles. It's also in 2 Kings. But in 2 Kings, I want to read to you how it is written there about what we'll call his epitaph. 2 Kings chapter 23. And king at eight, seeking God when he's 16, and purging the false gods and the false prophets at 20 years old. Let me ask you something. Was Josiah just some superhuman hero that God dropped on the earth to do? No. He's just a human? He had real bad parentage, too, by the way. If you read about his parents, wow. It wasn't like, you know, mom and dad were the picture of, of absolute Hebrew faithfulness. Not, not a chance. Well, look at what it says near the end of, at the end of his life, what I prefer to call his epitaph. 2 Kings 23, beginning at verse 21, and then we'll get to it. Then the king, that is Josiah, 2 Kings 23, 21, commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover of the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. He said, We're going to do things by the book, people. Such a Passover surely has never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or in all the days of the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, he's 26. This Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. On top of that, and moreover, moreover, got a member of South of Mason Dixon. Moreover, there's an R in that word, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. He put them all away. that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book. Second time we've seen that. He's going to do it according to the book. He is committed to the book. The book is all that's going to make. He didn't care if they wanted to put him away or not. He's going by the book. That Hiltiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. This is the epitaph. Look at this. Isn't this beautiful? Remember, he, he, he died at like 39. Now, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. Isn't that beautiful? He's still a young man. Even when he dies, 39. But look what he's accomplished. We could talk about four more than likely mid-teenage boys that had a huge impact. Huge impact! On God's people, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, we know the story right there. They're the young men, they're the nobles and royalty son that, sons that are taken into captivity. Look at, at what they did. By the way, did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego ever accomplish anything for God? It just kids. And you know, 
when it all began and they began to accomplish things for God, you know what that was? All you got to do is read Daniel 1. You don't even need to go as far as the lion's den and the handwriting on the wall and the, the Daniel 3, the great gold. You don't have to go that far. If you go back and just read Daniel 1, do you know where it all started? When they were willing to speak up and tell people that they weren't going along with the crowd, they were going to do it the way that God wanted it done. When they started telling people about their God, that's when it all started for them. And they just continued to tell people about their God. People that didn't know their God, about their God. They began telling, trusting, and proving to their hostile pagan captors just how great and awesome God was as probably mid-teenage boys. Young people. It just keeps going. And let's not forget what God did through some of those young, even in one case probably preteen, plus other teenage girls in the scripture who were willing specifically to simply tell people around them who didn't know God about God. That's what they did. Let me give you an example. Turn me to 2 Kings chapter 5. Just back up a few chapters here. 2 Kings chapter 5. First three verses. This is so fitting and incredible and awesome. 2 Kings 5, verses 1 through 3. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. This is a soldier. This is a guy that is in charge of other soldiers. He's a fighting man. He's, that's who he is. But he's a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Now, I cannot tell you what age she was. I can't, but the scripture doesn't say. <coughs> might have been 10, 12, might have been early teens, but she's a, a young girl. And she's working as a servant girl, a handmaiden, to Naaman's wife. He, he conducted raids, and she was brought back a captive, a slave, a servant, whatever term you want to put on it. And so... She says to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria, he'd deal with his leprosy. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that beautiful? You know what? If your husband knew the servant of my God, he'd, have, he'd fix it. He'd deal with it. Aren't, aren't kids wonderful? Just a matter of fact, we don't even know this young lady's name. Did she accomplish anything for God? Boy, did she ever. Boy, did she ever. We know the series of events. It's not you can home read the rest of the chapter. But I want you to look at the conclusion of the story, the rest of the story, in verses 14 and 15. Finally, Naaman goes out and he does what he's supposed to through a series of events. And it says, in verse 14, He went down, dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, came and stood before him, and he said, watch this, this is a guy that has raided Israel. This is a guy who was not one of God's people. And look what he says. Indeed, 
Now I know that there is no God in all... I bet that made you popular in Syria, huh? There is no God in all the earth except in Israel. You know why he said that? Because one young lady had the courage when she was in the midst of people who did not know her God to speak up and say, my God can fix that. That's why. That's how that works. And that's not the only place. There are others. We could speak of the young, probably teenage at the time of her capture, orphan girl, Esther. She had the courage, as we know from the book of Esther, to speak up to a pagan king. It could have cost her her life. Hostile, hostile crowd. I realize that he was, he was favorably disposed toward her, but still, he's not one of God's people. She didn't know. She didn't know when she went in if he was going to lift the scepter or not. She said, if I perish, I perish, right? You remember the story of Esther, right? And what did she do as a young girl, probably teens, what did she, she saved her nation because she was willing to speak up even if it were going to cost her dearly to speak up for her God. Of course, we could go to the New Testament, which we won't do until tonight in length, at length, but we could talk about a young, faithful, peasant, low-income, call her what you will, girl. Anybody remember some young lady in the New Testament called Mary? What did God do to this young teenage girl? He used her for the most precious of missions to simply bring his son into the world. And I can't believe I used the word simply. Let me say this one more time before I move on. If you thought, as a teenager, if you're one of those that stood up, even one of those, you know, later on in your 20s, and I'm not targeting anybody specific, but I need for you to understand, if you think that you are too young, too small, too little amount of knowledge, too insignificant, you're exactly who God is looking for. Because that's who God uses. If you are old enough to know and obey the gospel, you are old enough to go and convey the gospel. Now, to those of you who might have been tempted to think, I've spent enough time on that, those of you that might have been tempted to think, you're on the other end of the spectrum. I'm a little too old to do this now. You know, I've tried before, and I've got you know, kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, and I mean, we can keep adding grapes on there for whoever, but... You know, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm a little too old to be doing this. Talking to people about Jesus, you know, I've been involved in church for all these years. I've been on campaigns. And you know what? It, it's, some, it's the younger people's job. I'm, I'm just too old for this. I can't do this anymore. You need to go home and read Joshua 13 and 14 to begin with. And you need to reread this story from the New Testament. Look at me in Luke 2. Luke chapter 2. verses 36 to 38. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age. So here in Bibles, that's awesome. Luke 2, verse 36. She was of a great age. Don't you love it when people come up and say, boy, you're really getting old. 
<laughs> wow, I didn't realize you'd age so much. She was of a great age. I mean, this was the little old lady. How old? Well, take a look at that. She had lived with a husband seven years from her Virginia, from her virginity, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years. Do the math. If she gets married, as they did in those days, we'll say at 16, 15, 16, let's say, okay? She's 16, she gets married. She's married for seven years. That brings her to 23, okay? And then her husband dies, and she's been a widow for 84 years. You do the math. This woman was 107. Anybody in here over 100? She was 107 now. She was more than likely 107. The reason I say that is because some versions in the translation say she was a widow of 84 years, meaning she was a widow of 84 years of age. Okay? And you'll find people that... But the point is this. At her youngest, she's 84. If you look at the sentence structure the other way, she's around 107. Either way, in those days, that was a great age. Because we live longer now, right? That would be like somebody today that's, I don't know what the proportion is, but a lot older. That's like, at their youngest, they're 120. And at their oldest, they're 135. She was an old lady. She was a great age. No matter how you look at it. You know what the Bible says? Look at this. Verse 36. Talks about it. says, verse 37, she was a widow about 84 years who did not depart from the temple to serve God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord because she saw Jesus. And look what she did. And she spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. What's this little old lady doing? She'd be over 100 by today's standards. What's she doing? Telling everybody she can about the Lord. How old is too old to take the message of Jesus and tell somebody else? When the Lord wants us to stop talking about him, he'll take us home. Not only that, she's still telling the story. We could turn, and I'm going to ask you to turn to this one last passage in Acts chapter 20. And we'll close this morning's lesson. Acts chapter 20. As Paul started out doing right after his baptism, I mean immediately after his baptism, he started talking to people and convincing them, trying to convince them that Jesus was the Christ. And he kept right on until his old age. Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 17. Please follow along. Acts 20, 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, called for the elders of the church. When they come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. He said, boy, it's been rough. They've been after me at every turn. But, he says, I kept back, verse 20, nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you, taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What did Paul just say? He said, until my dying breath, 
I know it's been rough all along. People have been against me from the very beginning. They don't like what I got to say. He said, I know every time I go into I'm going to be in chains. I'm going to be in prison. It's going to be miserable. I don't care. The only thing that matters to me is that I finish my race and continue to tell people about Jesus Christ. That's all that matters to me. What did he say in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8? Fought the good fight. Finished the race. Kept the Paul died probably in his 60s. Right up till the last moment, he's telling people about Jesus. Final example. Don't even turn there. You know, well, what about the Apostle John? Did God ever use John to do anything? Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. John was in his 90s, probably, when he was on the Isle of Patmos in prison. Do you remember what he was in prison for? Because of the testimony of God. Because he kept preaching. The guy was in his 90s. And you couldn't shut him up. Because he loved the Lord so much. So they finally imprisoned him to try to shut him up. Because he just kept on teaching Jesus. Even approaching 100 years old. The bottom line is this this morning. God is a God of patterns. And God's pattern has always been to use the least, the littlest, the smallest, the seemingly most insignificant or powerless to accomplish some of the greatest, biggest, and most incredibly awesome turnarounds of unbelievers in the history of humanity. That's his pattern. And so if you were ever tempted to think, I'm just too young. I'm too old. I'm too powerless. I'm too small. I'm too uneducated. I'm too unprepared. I'm too unworthy. I'm too insignificant. To speak up and tell those people around me that don't know God, what an awesome God I've got. Then you, please accept this with all due respect, need to get back into your Bible and look at the people that God used to accomplish some incredible things. All he asks is that we go and do it the way he told us to do it. This morning, if you're here, you've never obeyed the gospel. God wants to forgive all your sins. That's why he sent Jesus. But God's not buying you just so you can sit in pews. If you're here and you're not a member of the church, the Lord does not expect you to just get baptized and sit here for the rest of your life. He's got a job for you to do. He wants you to share in that great mission of his. He wants you, after you're baptized and you are forgiven of your sins, to go out and tell people, how awesome it is to be forgiven of all your sins. Right, church? That's, that's the job he wants you to do here before he takes you home. This morning, if you would obey the gospel and become a child of his, or if you're somebody that needs the prayers of the church for strength to be able to go out and reach somebody for Jesus, I guarantee you if one of you walked down that aisle and asked for that, there's probably 30 more that would like to come right behind you. And you guys that lead closing prayers, in all prayers from the front of the building here and all of you in your private prayers, please remember over the next few months in every prayer, pray that we'll all have the strength to save one soul in 2019. If you have a need this morning,